But my goal is never to change opinions. Um, my goal is to further understanding. I really think the answer for women long-term, and maybe we'll get into this naturally in our conversation, but the answer for women long-term is a better understanding and appreciation for our reproductive systems. And I think both sides have that goal. We just have to be different ways we think we're gonna get there. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Robin Atkins. She is a licensed mental health counselor in Indiana, specializing in reproductive mental health, and she's also a mom. Today, Robin and I are going to discuss a very contentious issue, the issue of abortion. And uh, we have very different perspectives on abortion, but we respect each other's opinions. Robin and I are both professional communicators. It's it's what we do. And we've both uh, worked with abortion from every angle, with understanding for different perspectives. Um, Because abortion is such a highly contentious issue in this country and it brings up such deep feelings for people, I really wanted to offer our listeners the opportunity to hear how two therapists who can practice mindfulness and compassion and good communication skills can talk about such a difficult and often polarizing issue. Um, Robin, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited and I really appreciate the opportunity to do this with you um, and talk about it from both of our points of view and give people kind of a model of how these conversations could go. Yeah. Um, So you said that you're an open book, right? Um, You and I have both had abortions and we've both worked with women who have had abortions and felt different kinds of ways about that, who have had miscarriages and... um, so this is, it's a personal subject for us as women. Um, one issue we might go into a little bit more depth on is the, just what it is to be a therapist who's public about their opinions on social media. I think for those who don't work in the field, it's easy to kind of conflate how we express ourselves outside of a clinical context with how they assume we might treat our patients. And if there's anything we say that they don't like, then it's easy to kind of jump to conclusions and get up in arms about how unethical we are because they're afraid we're pushing our views on people. And from the conversations I've had with you in the past, that's really not the case. You know, I I work with people who have views that are different from me on a number of things. And when we're in therapy, I'm there to support them with their goals. Now, if I hear that part of their worldview seems to be reinforcing the patterns that are keeping them stuck, then I'm going to question that. But I'm not going to do it with my own agenda in mind. So I wanted to kind of frame it that way because I know that you're active um, with your perspectives. You're currently in the process of, you know, getting involved in legislation in your state with regard to abortion, but you're also able to work with a wide range of women 
in your office, regardless of their experiences, and you're not there to judge. So I'm curious if you can offer our listeners a little bit of your perspective on how you navigate these different roles and how it is that you can both have your own personal views on abortion and work with women who have made those choices. Yeah, that's a great question and very timely. Just today, I had some legislators ask me, what does it look like talking about abortion in session with clients? And they were under the misunderstanding that I direct clients on what to do, which is definitely not the case. As you know, we don't give advice and we don't give our personal opinions. And so I would love people to know that when a client comes to me, it's their goals, their agendas, but also their ethics and their concerns. And while I might throw out some pros and cons of their all their options based on what I know as a specialist, um, I also want them to give me their pros and cons. And I want to understand their social network and how they're being impacted by their family, their friends, media on the topic, so we can get at the heart of what they truly want. And an abortion is what they want, and they truly decide that in an informed way, then I walk with them through that. And I definitely don't say don't do it. I don't shame them for doing it. Um, We just walk through that together. Right. And I think for people who haven't studied therapy, um, you know, they don't know about issues like transference and countertransference, right? So for for the non-clinical audience here, transference, long and short of it is describes how you as a patient view your psychotherapist, the um, feelings you have of them, the assumptions you make of them, you know, whatever um, maybe projections come up, uh, someone in your past who they remind you of, right? And as a therapist, we have something called countertransference, which are our feelings toward our clients. And if we're trained well, and if we're good at our jobs, we are masterful at managing our countertransference. We know how to learn from it. We know how to keep it in check. So, you know, for our listeners, I just want to kind of introduce that concept because you might be thinking, well, if Robin has such strong views on abortion, how could she possibly just be so neutral and walk with women through that choice? And so I just wanted to remind you that we we have this mastery of working with our countertransference, and that's part of how we compartmentalize. On top of that, too, it's not just that I'm anti-abortion, which I am anti the act of abortion, but I'm pro-women. And so in a counseling session or even outside of it, if I'm meeting a woman on the street who's had an abortion who wants to have one, my goal is never to change their mind or convince them I'm right. It's to understand their position. And if they're open to it, not in the counseling session, but on the street, if they're open to understanding mine, sharing mine. But my goal is never to change opinions. Um, My goal is to further understanding. I really think the answer for women long-term, and maybe we'll get into this naturally in our conversation, but the answer for women long-term is a better understanding and appreciation for our reproductive systems. And I think both sides have that goal. We just have to be different ways we think we're going to get there. Right. And as a pro-choice person uh, who mostly knows other pro-choice people, I can imagine people hearing what you're saying and hearing how can you say you're pro-women and be pro-life, right? Because, um, you know, I I see people getting their wires crossed on this issue so much. I see that if you're pro-choice, everything for you is in terms of women's rights. Um, If you're pro-life, you have a whole different framing. And, you know, you'll never hear pro-choice people talking about the baby. It's always the fetus or the embryo. You'll never hear pro-life people talking about the fetus or the embryo. It's always the baby. And I think one way that 
we can improve our communication skills is to think about things in the other's language, right? So mm-hmm. as as a pro-choice person talking to a pro-life person, how can I think about, well, you view it as a baby before uh, before I would view it as a baby, right? And that's valid to you even if I see it differently. Um, so help. So for our other pro-choice listeners who hear a contradiction in that, help us understand how you can simultaneously uh, say that you're pro-women and also anti-abortion. Okay. Um, I do appreciate the way you presented that too. I've had a lot of conversations in the last two weeks. I have a lot of pro-choice friends and a lot of conversations about if I viewed abortion like you do, I would agree with you. If my perspective was the same as yours, I would agree with you, but it's not. So when I'm disagreeing with you on abortion, it's not that I agree with your perspective and I just have a different opinion on your perspective. It's a completely different perspective. So thank you for the opportunity to share that. When I look at abortion and what it does, to me, it does two things. It dismantles a woman's healthy reproductive system. So pregnancy occurs if our bodies are healthy and we're responding to stimuli in a healthy way. Um, It's not really a issue of do we want or do we not want it. If there is sperm during ovulation and the two meet and all things align correctly, a woman could get pregnant and that's just her body being healthy. And so it also ends the life of a human being. And I'm not really particular about when anyone calls it. I'm okay calling the fetus baby. Um, I prefer offspring because to me, it's kind of a neutral term. It's um, the definition of fetus, but it seems less technical maybe. Um, So, but I really, I'm fine with whatever people want to call it, but um, it ends the life of that human being at whatever stage they're at. And so when I think about the second half, let's take the ending the life of a human being part, you know, at least half of those human beings are females. And that doesn't feel very inclusive of those females to me. Abortion doesn't, that they don't get a choice, that their life didn't get beyond whatever level of development they were permitted to get to by those with more power than they had. And so I don't see that as justice for those women. Um, And then for our own reproductive systems, I don't see a future where we can claim equality based on dismantling our bodies when they're just doing what they're supposed to do and being healthy. I just don't see a future in equality. To me, it seems we have to take apart our female selves to be more like men to fit in. And I just don't see that as equality. So to me, abortion in and of itself is a misogynistic. And I'm not saying people that are pro-choice are misogynistic. I, I don't want anyone to understand that. I, From your point of view, you see it completely different. So I don't think anybody who's pro-choice is misogynistic. I see the act of abortion as that. And I, I don't really want to go into the whole history of abortion and how it got here and why it got here. But at the end of the day, it is the dismantling of our bodies. And I don't see, and I kind of have an overall larger point of view of, do we have a right to undo healthy biology? Not unhealthy biology, like cancer. Of course, we have a right to try to stop unhealthy biology, but do we have a right to undo healthy biology as a whole? And I don't think we have the right to do that. Now, does the government have the right to stop us from doing that? That's a separate question, but is it a right for us to do it? I don't think so. 
If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I already see so many places we could go with this. I have so many responses, but before going there, let's back up. Can you, I mean, you had an abortion. So was there a time in your life that you were pro-choice? I was pro-choice, but my abortion wasn't consented to in an informed way at all. Um, in my case, it I went into Planned Parenthood for STD testing and left which what I thought was preventing pregnancy. They did not tell me that they had tested my blood and I was pregnant. I mean, I knew they tested my blood for STDs, but I didn't know they did a pregnancy test. And I was, and they gave me RU486 and I had an abortion over the next 48 hours. Wait, what? And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh. there was no informed consent. Oh, okay, wait. <laughs> Hold on. Wait. So you didn't know you're pregnant. Mm-mm. You went to Planned Parenthood for STD testing. They found out you were pregnant. They didn't tell you you were pregnant? They gave you an abortion pill? They gave me the first pill there and the second one to take home. What did they tell you they were giving you? They told me they were preventing pregnancy. And at the time, I just figured it was plan B. But I didn't know enough about the reproductive system or how plan B works to know. I wasn't even within the window of plan B working. So had you, you'd like recently had unprotected sex and you were Mm -hmm. concerned and, uh, wow, that I'm just having a hard time making sense of what you just said. Sure. I mean, it's, it just disrupts my entire sense of how these things are supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) yeah. so you were you had actually conceived. You didn't know you had mm-hmm. conceived. Did mm-hmm. they ask you if you wanted plan B? 
B? Somehow no, you walked away with the impression that you were taking plan B. Yeah. So, well, I, at that time, I wouldn't have called it plan B. I would have said, I'm walking away preventing pregnancy. So the way that it was described to me was, yes, I had an STD and I was in tears. Um, clearly, the person I was with had cheated on me and I was very distraught. And the language around it was very comforting on the outside, like looking at it was, we're so very sorry this happened to you. This can't be a decent guy that would do this. Wouldn't it be such a shame to be tied to him forever if you got pregnant? Let's um, give you something that will help prevent pregnancy so you don't have to be tied to him or um, be put in that position. And that's how it was presented to me. And I just believed them that that's what was happening. So at no point were you told you're pregnant. Would you like to explore your options? No. That is really disturbing. Yeah. I have to think that the reason that was done was I was homeless and addicted at the time. I was living in my car. Mm -hmm. And I have to think that that person thought she was helping me. Truly. I don't think she thought she was hurting me. Um, and I truly do believe that. That's not just me needing to make the best of a situation so I can live with it. I truly do believe she thought she was helping me. Um, but yeah, that's that's what happened. And it took years. I mean, it's been 21 years. So it took 19 years before I even really dealt with it. Okay. So this was a really rough time in your life. How comfortable are you going into that? Really comfortable. Okay. Really comfortable. Um, can you tell us about what was happening at that time in your life? By the way, it's not every day that I get to talk to another therapist who also has this kind of past. I mean, I was never sure. addicted, but you know, I've also been homeless. I've been through things that you don't associate with like a white middle-class lady with a, a master's mm -hmm. degree, you know? Yes. Um, same. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, yeah. tell us the story as much as you're comfortable sharing that. Sure, sure. If people want a full podcast on that particular like year of my life, I did one um, with the Tough Love podcast. I think it was episode 13, if they want to go look at that. But um, basically, I was in a car accident after my freshman year of college, and I had a traumatic brain injury. And at that point, my whole personality flipped. But it was so many years ago, we didn't really have a diagnosis of traumatic brain injury at that time. So we didn't really know. I was diagnosed as bipolar. I am not bipolar. I was hospitalized for a while and thought they thought schizophrenia for a while. I'm not schizophrenic. Um, it really was a traumatic brain injury, but my whole personality changed. And I left my parents' house and started following fish around the country, the band fish around the country, and um, got into a relationship with a man who was truly schizophrenic. And I thought I was going to save him. And so it was a very tumultuous year and a half um, between living in my car and doing a lot of drugs and um, being in this relationship that I truly cared about, but it was not a safe place to be. Um, ultimately, I mean, there's more to the story than that. If we go back further, um, I was raped twice as a teenager, one at set 15 and once at 17. And the response from my church and my parents wasn't fantastic. And I've made my amends with my parents. They're wonderful. My father's passed on, but they're wonderful people. Um, and they certainly didn't mean harm, but the way they responded, I just went running from any of that support system. So I, I don't want people to think, you know, I, I, it's not that I didn't have family. I just didn't have family. I think I 
thought I could trust. Um, my way out of that whole situation was my brother, who lived in Tennessee, asked me to come down and help with his kids. And that basically is what saved me. I went down there and cleaned myself up and got back into college. And that's what saved me was those kiddos that needed my help. But yeah, so I don't know what other questions you might have, but that's kind of the overview. Okay, so that's the relationship that you were in when that happened. Um, what kind mm-hmm. of drugs were you on? I was using acid pretty regularly on a daily basis, I would say. I was using ecstasy on occasion, so I'm not a fan and wasn't really a huge fan of it. Definitely marijuana and definitely alcohol. So it's likely that the fetus you didn't know you were carrying was exposed and would have potentially had birth defects, would have potentially been... Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I've met plenty of women who have used their entire pregnancy and their baby's fine. And I've met other women that have used and their baby wasn't. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been through some of the experiences that give people the strongest feelings about being pro-choice. I mean, the, the lack of consent is really alarming. It does make a little bit more sense when you describe what she might have been thinking. I think it's it's understandable that a compassionate person would want to, you know, protect a baby from being born into that situation. But at the same time, you didn't consent to that. And that's just egregious. Um, but I mean, you talk about being raped. You talk about being in a position where if you had had a baby, that child would have been extremely vulnerable and at risk. As someone who's been through those experiences, how do you respond from that pro-life perspective to people who have concerns about, you know, preventing babies from being born into homeless addicted families and, uh, you know, helping teenage girls who are raped to not have to have the whole rest of their life altered by that or become mothers before they're ready? Sure. So the big, big, large view answer to that would be going back to what my definition of equality for women is, which is abortion is a band-aid, not a solution. These things have continued on despite 49 years of Roe being legal. Um, And so I think we have to have a total culture change in our country. Um, I would prefer that not happen legally. I would prefer that would happen in the hearts and minds of people, but a cultural change to valuing parenthood valuing motherhood, valuing women's reproductive systems, um, and valuing children overall. Um, I look at things from a children's rights point of view, and I think children have the right to be protected by their parents from conception. And so looking at it from that point of view, a child who may suffer in the future, everyone suffers. Now, people can suffer to differing degrees. I don't really like to play the game of whose suffering is worse, but there are suffering that obviously we all react to, like a child being born addicted or a child that's in foster care or a child that's being abused. All of those things are horrifying to all of us, but I look at it as we need to fix those issues rather than end the life of the person that's suffering or may potentially suffer. And so we really need to address the problems that are perpetuating those situations rather than get rid of the people that are suffering from those situations. I 
I get a little lost in the kind of order of priority there because the way you describe it and, and the way I've heard other pro-life people describe their vision of the world, it sounds, I mean, there's a lot that sounds good about it, right? Like a world where parents have time to cherish with their children and where all children are safe. I mean, many of these things, they sound great, right? Um, but you know, there, there was that, uh, I think about a month ago or something, I tweeted something and, and you responded and it wasn't specifically directed at you. It was just about abortion. I, I said that, uh, a lot of the pro or pro-life people I know, um, I'm connected to them. I'm thinking Twitter mostly here, right? Because we share similar views on mm-hmm. some other issues and on those other issues, those same people's perspectives strike me as really pragmatic. On this issue, it it strikes me as idealistic, right? I hear what you're saying. It's a Band-Aid, not a cure. But there's a reason that we need Band-Aids as well as other treatment options when it comes to first aid, right? And I agree. I'd love to live in a world where nobody ever feels the need for an abortion. But I think what confuses me is why when there are all those ills in the world, um, you know, all the people who aren't safe and the families that don't have what they need to raise children. And when it, when there are all these problems, why would you start with taking away women's rights to access those band-aids? Why not make the world a better place first so that the need for abortion falls away or is dramatically reduced. Because I think I, I think a lot of people who are strongly pro-choice and people who are probably further to the left of me politically are bewildered that like on the one hand conservatives, and I don't know how you identify politically, I'm I'm politically homeless, but you know, conservatives are generally linked with being pro-life, liberals with pro-choice. I think conservatives on so many issues are all about small government, reducing taxes. They see the negative downstream effects of handouts. And it's like they don't want welfare for single moms, right? And then these same people are saying, oh, but we need a world that's more friendly to women and children where women don't have to make such difficult decisions. And it all just seems a little kind of pie in the sky to me. And I'm like, yeah, your vision of the world sounds great. And we're so far away from that. Why would the first thing that you do be to try to take away abortion rather than fixing those other problems first? Okay, I have three responses to that. My first response would be, I don't look to legislation as my first answer. I look to how am I acting in the world to my first answer. So I do pro bono work for single mothers and sexual assault survivors and women on Medicaid because I don't take Medicaid. So a quarter of my clients are free. And that's me walking the walk, you know, walking my talk. So that my first line is working with actual people in those situations and getting them the help that I am equipped to give them. I can't answer all the problems in the world. I'm just one person, but I'm doing what I can in my little corner. So that's answer number one. Answer number two would be, We've tried abortion for 49 years and none of those problems got fixed that way. Are we willing to try something different? 
um, to see if we can get out of that. I think I could see why people would think that it's idealistic or pie in the sky. But when I look at actually working on legislation and working on legislators, it's often the simplest answer that they want, the simplest and cheapest answer they want. And it doesn't matter if they're left or right. I'm politically homeless as well. But it doesn't matter if they're left or right. They want the cheapest, easiest answer. And abortion is certainly a lot cheaper than funding families. And so I don't see them, if we have abortion still being legal, turning around and going, yes, but let's also give money to support families or look at legislation to support families. Now, I'm not a huge fan of federally funded programs because I think a lot gets lost between D.C. and whatever city you're in. I'm okay with federally funded state-run or even better locally-run programs. So I'm not opposed to government on some level helping at all. I just prefer it would be run as local as possible so the needs of that particular community can be addressed rather than lost in translation between D.C. and wherever you happen to be. Um, So maybe that's different than other pro-lifers. I don't know. Overall, I don't think that most of them would disagree with me. Um, I think even most conservatives are okay with local um, government-run programs that they have more control over. Um, But I think my third response would be, at what point then, if suffering is justification for violence and causing the death of a human being, at what point do we stop? Why do we stop at 12 weeks, 20 weeks, 30 weeks, two years old? If, If suffering especially the suffering of children, is justification for not letting them be born at all. Why do we let them exist in suffering after birth? What's the difference there? Because to me, from my perspective, it's the same human being. They're just at a different level of development and in a different location, but it's the same human being. In utero, we are projecting upon them a future where we assume suffering. So we're making a life or death decision for them based on our presumptions or our assumptions of the future. And when I look at my future or my history, a child who had child sexual abuse, physical violence from my dad, two rapes, homelessness, addiction, I sh- like based on the we should let children suffer, I should have been aborted. But my life is so worth living now. So I don't know that I'm comfortable ever saying based on our presumptions of what your life is going to turn out to be, we think it's better for you not to exist. That all makes sense to me. I I don't necessarily agree with the conclusions you come to, but you know, the part about walking the talk really makes sense because you're describing how you live by your values. Um and that last part about where do we draw the line, it's it's an important question I don't have the answer to. You know, I mean, and and it branches out into at what point do we allow or support something like medically assisted suicide? And what are the conditions where we collectively agree to support that or the death penalty or, um, you know, you talk about the, the likelihood of a child being born with certain conditions. Well, there's a cost benefit analysis to all of this. And, and so much of that is difficult to estimate or not ours to quantify. Um, but thinking about living with uh, a disability, you know, like if if a mother found out early in pregnancy that her child was going to have some kind of disability that would severely impair their quality of life, you know, um, it brings up the question of 
if you're looking at the cost benefit analysis, like how is this going to affect everyone? What kind of life could that person have? And we're also kind of at a point where it, we, for most of human history, we haven't had the resources to be able to support people living with disabilities. And I'm not saying any of this is good or bad. I'm not saying we should go back to our tribal past, but in our tribal past, I mean, when you ask where you draw the line, well, infanticide used to be common. I'm not recommending it. I'm not making. Mm-hmm. Still is. Okay. In certain parts of the world, right? That In part. Con- because yes. abortion mm-hmm. wasn't available yeah. and resources were scarce. Um, I, I think throughout history, there have been women who was, you know, felt like it was, it was them or the baby, or maybe it was the baby or the other baby or, um, and I can't possibly know what it's like to be in that position of making that decision. But I, I think we we do know that infanticide was common. And that tells us something. I don't know what it tells us. I think there are people who are much more qualified to answer that than I am. But it, it's an important question, right? Where do you draw those lines? And I know certain religions um, have certain views on where life begins. You believe life begins at conception. Some people believe that there's a certain moment, it's a certain point in the pregnancy where the soul enters the body or where the being becomes conscious or something like this. And I don't profess to have the answers to any of those things. I I just think pragmatically that we all have difficult costs and benefits to weigh in so many life decisions. And and this is one of them. And it becomes more complicated because it's, it's not just about the person making the decision. It's also about another being that they're making that decision on behalf of. And there's a lot of speculation and a lot of emotion and competing needs. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Yeah, I definitely think it's a case of two people's competing needs or competing rights even. And um, I don't want to try to present that as an easy situation or a flippant situation. When I look at my 
ideology, if I was going to go straight off ideology with no practical real life anything, um, it would be very easy for me to just say, well, discrimination is always bad. Violence is always bad. We shouldn't ever discriminate based on ability or disability. Um, While I believe that ideologically and reality, there are certain things we have to do to accommodate disability, for example. Is that looked at as discrimination? Some people think so. Some people think that's treating someone with a disability differently if we have to make accommodations or we choose to make accommodations. And so therefore, um, we are discriminating against them by making accommodations. And um, I don't agree with that particular point of view, but I can see why people would make that point of view. Or if it comes down to the case of a life of a mother versus her child, I see that as two competing right to life rights. And so a mother has a right to defend her life in that case. If we wanted to get really technical about it, when, what is the definition of abortion and when is that actually necessary versus like early delivery? which I wouldn't consider abortion in that case, but some people do. And so I don't want to discount that there's differing definitions of abortion floating around, which I think is perpetuating a lot of the misunderstanding. Like the claims that that people on the pro-life side make about people on the pro-choice side, that they just don't care about babies and don't um, care about pregnancy or about um, the suffering women might go through after abortion. I don't think any of that's true. I think for the majority of pro-choice people, they're really looking at it as individual people living individual lives that we don't want government dictating. That's really what I think is the bottom line. And it comes from a place of compassion and concern. And I am that way on about 90% of things. Um, I I am a minarchist, I think is what it's called, where minimal government is possible. Um, I only see the government really having a role in safety and security. And that's about it. So, but that to me includes when do we allow for violence against other human beings? And I would say if there's no other option, if there's no other way out, fine. But if there are other options, should we might consider those rather than violence towards another human being, even if that option is inconvenient or difficult and the road is difficult. Um, So, I don't know if that helps at all or if that answers any questions you might have, but. I mean, at first, it, at first I hear you going in a direction that's increasingly confusing to me and I'm, I'm going like, this is the same <laughs> just bizarre place I end up with it when, when I'm trying to understand a pro-life point of view, someone who's saying that they want minimal government interference in our lives. Then I'm thinking, well, then wouldn't, like, why do you want the government telling women that we can't control our bodies? And then I hear that you're viewing abortion as violence against another human being, right? And again, it's like, well, if I saw it that way, I would feel the same way, which is something you said to me, right? And if I saw yes. abortion yeah. as violence against another human being, then I could generally agree with you on on the topic of, yes, I want I want minimal government interference in our daily life except to protect us from violence, right? Of course, I don't view it as violence toward another human being because I have different ideas about life. Uh, and and I think this gets, it gets very existential. Um, oh. So that's something mm-hmm. I don't understand. And I'm hoping maybe you mm-hmm. can explain that to me because maybe I'm wrong and I'm totally open to that. But I look at it as embryology 
and like science, like when a new distinct human DNA is formed, that's a human. Um, and the word being, that can be an existential word, but that's to me, scientifically in embryology, that's a human. And so I don't know how to look at it any other way. Cause I don't come at this from a religious point of view. I am religious, but that's, I really don't come at this from a religious point of view. Lots of people that are religious have different thoughts about abortion. It's not my religion telling me this. I really try to look at it from a science point of view and how, can you explain to me how that you see it as not a human? Sure. Well, uh, so there's, there's humanity and then there's sentience, right? Um, I think one thing that distinguishes the pro-life and pro-choice views in general, I don't know, I am definitely not speaking for everyone on either side, but I think the most people who are pro-life hold a special sanctity around human life compared to non-human life that might be a higher degree of sanctity on average than people who are pro-choice who might hold, you know, like if you, if you look at like the animal rights activists on the far left, maybe hold human life in disregard because they're so, let's say like a misanthropic animal rights activist who thinks humanity is evil and nature is good, right? Take someone on that extreme and there's like, well, who cares Mm -hmm. about humans? I want to protect animals, right? That's one worldview. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, that's on one side. And then like maybe like a devout Christian who has views on like the sanctity of human life is on the other. I'm somewhere in the middle. That's a big range. But how sacred is human mm-hmm. life compared to any other type of life? I don't know that I have a kind of set decision on that that I would stick to. Um, and we take life all the time to survive, you know? Um, so I I was that animal rights activist when I was 14. I was I was vegan. I just thought humans were the worst. I just, uh, you know, meat is murder and all of that, right? That that was my worldview. And, and I thought the world was overpopulated as well. Um, so let me collect my thoughts. And, and now I sure. eat meat, right? And, and there was a time about 10 years ago when I had to dismantle what was then like a lifetime's worth of vegetarianism and everything associated with that in order to kind of evolve into embracing what my body really needed at that time and has ever since. Um, And I, I had to entirely shift my understanding of like the meaning of life and the role that death plays in life and the cycle of life and, um, you know, accepting that I am, not a flawless divine being. I am, I am an embodied being that's part of the cycle of life and death and consumption. Um, I've also, you know, I've, I've learned that, um, I, I don't have a grim existential view of life, but I do think that every organism has a responsibility to fight for itself. And that, that doesn't negate the value of cooperation, but, um, you know, people who don't center their own well-being end up getting taken advantage of. And as a therapist, I see that time and time again. So I I had to become more callous in a way to overcome some of my natural ethical leanings and say, you know what, like, I am not going to take the world 
the weight of the world upon my shoulders. I'm going to eat meat and not worry about it because it feeds me. And also I understand that, you know, a vegan diet is very taxing on the environment as well. Just because you're killing fewer animals for the form of food doesn't mean you're not contributing to deforestation and, you know, so I just kind of realized that there's no Mm -hmm. such thing as being alive without participating in harm. And for me, I had to kind of shift the balance. It's like, okay, if I can't not harm, then can I shift the balance so that among all the good and bad I'm putting into the world, I'm putting more good in the ways that good is meaningful to me. And someone else might, someone else might have diff- different values. They might look at the balance in my life and say that I'm investing my energy in the wrong things and that I'm doing more harm than good. And that's their calculation. But all I can do is make my own calculation. So I think there's something about willingness to participate in cycles of life and death something about the kind of how much you view human life as more sacred than any other form of life. Then there's a concept of of sentience itself, right? So, you know, at what point does a fetus or embryo start to resemble a fully formed human? Well, you might say right away. Um, Certainly the blueprint is there. It's in the DNA. And if you look at when it's very tiny, it roughly has the shape of a human being. But, uh, Let's compare compare an embryo that's, let's say, an inch long with uh, a fully grown adult human and then compare it with a, an inch long baby hamster. Which is it more similar to? I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying I have the answer to that question, but I can't say definitively that it's but it bears a greater resemblance to a fully grown adult human with all the sentience that we possess than it does to a sentient being that also has a nervous system, that's also a mammal, uh, that is of a similar size and uh, somehow maybe parallel cognitive faculty. I have no idea the cognitive faculty of a baby hamster, (laughs) but I just don't know that I would draw those lines in the same place. That makes sense to me um, if I was looking at it from that point of sentience. And I would say if I was just looking at sentience, probably somewhere around 16 weeks would be my line. Maybe a little bit before that, because we know that fetuses respond to stimulation like light and sound before 16 weeks, but we're just not sure where. And so that's where I would say there's definitely some cognitive awareness of interaction of some kind at that point, if I was going to look at it from sentience. But on the flip side of that, I don't think that a newborn baby has more in common with an adult than a baby hamster, as far as what they're capable of, personally. Um, So I'm not comfortable at all with that. Um, And so to me, it always, and maybe this is way too simplistic, but to me, it always comes back to location. It's inside a woman versus a newborn or a baby hamster. It always comes back to bodily autonomy and when we have the right to assert that and when we don't. And if that's going to matter more than human life as a sanctity issue, if bodily autonomy is going to matter more, then we have a lot of correcting to do in our society as it is because there's lots of things we're not allowed to do with our bodies already so many laws around our bodies and what we can or can't do with it. So if we're going to be for bodily autonomy, we need to get rid of all vaccine mandates. 
we need to get rid of all um, restrictions on drugs during pregnancy. Um, we need to get rid of seatbelt loss. I mean, there's, there's just so many things we would have to get rid of. But you're not arguing for that, though. No, I'm just saying, if that okay. were my opinion. <laughs> you're if just I saying was logically. Pro-choice, yes, log- if I was pro-choice, I would be arguing that. Oh, okay. If I was. Hold on, let me. bodily autonomy would matter more to me than the sanctity of life. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. I, I, I hear you getting really like philosophical and analytical with it, where you're saying that from the logic of prizing bodily autonomy, as pro-choice people do, if, if you're to carry out that value of prizing bodily autonomy to other issues, it would mean eliminate vaccine mandates, seatbelt laws, and laws about drugs well drugs in general yeah, as well as drugs, drugs uh a woman using drugs during pregnancy um yeah i mean and and this is why we don't make decisions with only one value guiding all of our decisions all the time right because it's insane like if 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 you are mm-hmm. rigid if you just have one guiding value and you use that as the key factor in making all decisions, then you're making insane decisions. And unfortunately, most of us don't do that. But I, I see what you're saying as a thought experiment. I'm not sure if I understand why that's, or, or where you're trying to go with that though. So I guess where I would try to go with that is, often the feedback I get is, you're pro-life, but what about people in poverty? And what about, why shouldn't the government be the answer to that? you know, which to me is the same thing. It's just a thought experiment in the other way. You know, I have values that are competing just as much as anybody else does. And do I want to give government control over, like federal government control over spending a local regions? No, I don't. I think they'd make a terrible idea. I don't know about you, but my experience with Medicaid trying to make decisions for patients regarding care, like that's a nightmare. So no, I don't want that. So I have competing values there. Does it mean that I'm inconsistent or... I have hypocrisies, maybe, but I'm not all or nothing thinking. You know, um, when it comes down to bodily autonomy, I do think that there's some things we have to give concessions on to make the world safer. Um, When it comes down to the sanctity of life, I do think there needs to be concessions on if a woman's life is at risk, she should have the right to do whatever she wants to do to save it. You know, so there, I do make concessions based on competing values. And, um, Go ahead, well, sir. and that's and that's again where it's like, where do you draw the line? Because you draw the line at if her life is literally at stake, as in like she could die, right? Mm-hmm. And I would draw the line. I I would give a lot more room for her to decide what it means for her to feel like her life is at stake, right? Not just is she literally going to die, but how much is she going to have to give up? You know. So maybe in this case, I'm, I don't know if callous is the right word, but more callous than you. I don't think feelings have a lot of value in the decisions we make with regard to other people's well-being. If I was going to base my decisions on how I treat my living children based on my feelings, there would be a lot of days they just had a mom that was checked out. So it's, I just don't see how I feel about what my life is worth or what my life should be or what I want my life to look like as valuable as how am I acting in my life and who am I harming and who am I benefiting? 
All right, let's go, let's go there um, because you bring up an important point. You are speaking from a place of your personal values around responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some people have that attitude from an early age. It's just their temperament. Some people are inculcated into a spirit of responsibility by their family, their culture, their religion. Uh, other people take varying amounts of time and life experience to find a more responsible attitude. And for some people, parenthood is a dramatic turning point. You know, some people are pretty reckless until they become parents. They decide they want to be parents and then their attitude shapes up. The attitude you just described is the attitude of a mother who acts like one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I actually wanted to ask you something that I think relates to this, which is what is your vision of what would happen the chain chain reactions if abortion was no longer available as of tomorrow. I'm guessing when I listen to pro-life logic, I'm guessing that one of the things that you think would happen, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of people would rapidly become more responsible like that. And I, I, it kind of sounds like that's what you want as a pro-life person. You want other people to really mature a lot more quickly into this attitude of it's not all about me. I have someone else I'm making response. I'm making decisions for now. And that that moment should occur for them. The moment of conception is that part of the picture or how else would you respond to the question of what would, what do you imagine the positive changes would be in people in society if abortion were not an option? So Statistically, we don't have a ton of research on it, but the research we do have on it, the women that are turned away from abortions do become mothers. They, it, it's not tied to abuse or neglect at all, whether a woman wanted an abortion or not. Wait, didn't, what do you mean they were one. turned away from abortions? Like they were, for some reason, weren't allowed to get one, whether it was time limits or their state they live in, whatever. For whatever reason, they were went to get one and were turned away until they couldn't have one. Um, overwhelmingly, they become mothers. Do I think that it's this sudden rapid maturation and suddenly they're fully mature adults? Probably not. But overwhelmingly, their perspective on it is, I would rather have this human in my life and care for them than not. Is it messy? Probably. Do they need help? Absolutely. Um, I'm not saying suddenly they're like middle-class women with fantastic careers. Um, they definitely still need help. So I'm not living in this idealistic world that suddenly they can do all the things they want to do. Also, recently, I mean, every time we have this like national um, abortion debate and it looks like laws are headed towards pro-life, I see women all over social media like, I'm going on a sex strike. And I'm like, okay, I'm not asking you to do that. But can we seriously for a minute contemplate why are we not having more regard for our bodies that we're having sex with someone we wouldn't want to parent with. And I'm okay if people want to do that. Um, but if they want to do that, it doesn't mean they get to do that free of consequences. So just like if you have a born child who's a week old, we hold you responsible, whether you want to be mature or not. There are laws around that. You can't just abandon your child. I mean, you could do safe havens, but you can't abuse your child. You can't not feed your child. You, like you have to care for your child. Are we expecting them at birth to suddenly just be mature? We as a society are drawing that line. Like here you go. This is, so I'm saying, no, it doesn't happen there. It probably wouldn't happen before that, 
But as a whole society, should we probably be rethinking sex and its role in our lives altogether? Yes. So would you hope then that if abortion weren't available, more people would be more considerate, more thoughtful about who they enter into sexual relationships with and really consider that if a fertile male and a fertile female have intercourse, sex can happen or uh, pregnancy can happen. Um, Even if they thought, I mean, even if they thought one of them was infertile or, you know, even if they were using contraception, if sex is happening, pregnancy is possible. Do you wish that more people would really be a lot more thoughtful about who they choose to engage with in the first place? And if so, what are the other consequences besides just fewer unwanted pregnancies that you could see for society of that ethos shifting? Oh my goodness. Okay. I want to back up a little bit because anybody who's pretty well educated on this will know that 50% of abortions are married women. So I don't want to pretend that that's not a fact. I had no idea the number was That's a different population. Yeah. So that's outside the population we're talking about. And I just want to acknowledge that's there and that's not what we're talking about right now. And I'm more than happy to discuss that demographic as well, but I didn't want people to think I wasn't aware of that. So yes, I, I mean, as a whole, I think not just regarding pregnancy and abortion and parenting, but for their own sake, who we have sex with matters. And I don't mean that from a religious, you're going to hell if you have sex. Not at all. That's not the perspective I'm talking about. I'm talking about it as in the way I describe it to kids when I'm doing sex education and how consent works. If you think about the U.S. and Mexico, you know, we, we have borders that line and we have treaties and we have agreements. And if one of those countries was to invade another country, literally enter the other country without some awareness of the outcomes of that and agreements from both sides of the outcomes of that, we'd have war. Well, why would we as human beings allow one person to enter into the physical body of another human being without some understanding and consent around what could result from that? Um, when we don't have agreement on that, we often end up in war personal one-on-one. So I think just as a whole, we should have a lot more conversations around what does informed consent mean for sex? And can people consent to sex if they're not capable of managing the consequences of that? And I don't mean that from a legal perspective. I don't want people hearing me say there should be any laws against sex other than minors. Um, That's not what I mean. I just mean on a individual level with how we care for ourselves and those around us. Is it I, like I tell my sons, my, one is eight and one is 12. I tell my 12 year old, you know, you are not honoring a female body by having sex prior to the point of which you could care for her and any offspring you produce. Period. You're not honoring her. And so that's how I would prefer. Now, I, that's probably idealistic and pie in the sky. But yeah, that's what I would prefer. The outcomes of that I see. Um, mostly positive. I, I, well, I mean, potentially we could have a bigger porn addiction problem than we do now. Um, but I think porn is actually driving a lot of what we're seeing now. So I hope it would actually make it less. It would swing the other direction. Um, I hope we would see a lot less STDs. I hope we would see a lot more people standing up and parenting in ways that, um, 
not 70% of certain demographics are living without a father in the home. You know, I would, I would hope that that would be rectified as well. Um, I'm not asking people to necessarily spend the rest of their lives with someone they have sex with, but you may be having to have them in your life in some way. Yeah, what do you see as the connections between the abortion issue and the fatherlessness issue? I think women, especially women who aren't in relationships with men committed to parenthood, not just to them, but to parenthood, are facing uphill single parent battles that they shouldn't have to face. And this is all time. So this might be kind of shocking for people that um, aren't used to this from pro-lifers, but I have kind of a progressive view on issues. Like I see the drug war as really harming Black male Americans. And um, I see war on crime in generally harming Black male Americans. And part of that, to me, stems all the way back to slavery and what it takes to come out of something like that. I mean, civil rights are relatively new in the span of our history as a country. And so when I think about what it takes to come out of a place where you've been for 200 years treated as less than human, you're not as a group, as a demographic, and and the government then looking at you as like, well, if I just throw some money at you, that'll solve the problem when there's all kinds of infrastructure problems and law issues around that. Um, it's not that simple. So hopefully we could start to unravel all of that as well. Like, what does it truly mean for all humans to be equal? If we're going to look at it from a child's right perspective and a human rights perspective, what does it mean for all humans to have equality? Um, and hopefully we could rectify some of that. I'm sure that my more conservative friends are probably like, what the heck is she talking about? But I really do have a progressive view of problems. I have more of a libertarian view of answers overall, but a progressive view of problems. Interesting distinction there. Yeah. Well, to me, government is a large part of the problem. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. What's on your mind in terms of, like, what, what are the key things we haven't gotten to yet that would be interesting to explore? Um, we haven't talked, I would love your opinion on how we treat trauma related to rape or pregnancy. Um, it's something I testify a lot about. And so I would love your perspective on that. I would love to know if I'm incorrect in what my knowledge of how we treat those things are. Um, I know that's even dicier than abortion in and of itself, but I, I I think two mental health professionals talking about it would be great. Um, I think talking about recovery from trauma related to abortion or related to not being able to have one, because that can be trauma too. And so I'm fully willing to acknowledge the full experiences people have. I don't shy away from those. Um, and I'm not here to pretend they don't happen. So I would love for us to talk about what does that look like and why I trust 
the vast majority of providers pro-life or pro-choice to do that well. Although between you and me, not with pronouns in their bio, but other than that, I trust them to do it well. I would at some point like to talk to you privately about how, to me, this topic overlaps with gender ideology, but I don't want to do it on camera until you've had a chance to hear me. I don't want to do that to you, put you in that position. So. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious that you brought that up because it's so hard for me to fathom what it would be like to work with a woman who was raped and didn't have access to abortion. But clearly you have a different perspective. So how do you think we should approach that? I think we should approach it the way we approach any woman who's raped. We deal with the trauma of rape with really quality therapy, depending on what her particular nuances call for, but from a psychodynamic approach for sure. But then we can add in EMDR or CBT or prolonged exposure therapy, which is what seems to work best for my particular clients regarding any kind of trauma. Aren't those I think we offer them contraindicated during pregnancy though, because it's my understanding you don't want to do AMDR during pregnancy. You don't want to like stir up trauma. You want to focus on soothing it. And, and this is, I'm just trying to imagine that at the time sensitive position of having just been a victim of rape and being newly pregnant in a way that you didn't consent to and the DNA inside you is the DNA of your perpetrator. Like, I mean, I'm talking about that nine-month window of the actual pregnancy following the rape. Mm -hmm. Are you recommending those treatments during that time? So I don't do EMDR, and I'm not a specialist in it, so I can't speak to that. Prolonged exposure therapy, I don't know of any contraindications of that during pregnancy. I mean, certainly it would depend on the patient's ability to manage that during pregnancy and their desire to do so. I would never do that without consent, but I don't know of any contraindications of that. Um, I mean, if we wanted to talk about how much stress impacts the developing embryo or fetus, we can definitely do that. But there's lots of ways that pregnancies can be structural. Like um, pregnancy with my oldest son, I had hyperemesis and was on bed rest and um, suicidal and it was terrible. Um, I don't know if his frontal lobe issues are due to that or the fact that he was preemie by eight weeks. But I'm glad he's alive regardless. And so is he. Um but so, no, I don't see, I don't know of any contraindications with you doing standard therapy during pregnancy. I do it all the time um, with consent. Um, but pregnancy can be traumatic from rape and it doesn't have to be. So part of that is I really want to push back against any narrative. I'm not saying you're giving me this narrative at all. I just see it in media that pregnancy from rape is always traumatic. There are quite a few women who find pregnancy from rape as an opportunity to take back control of their body and protect another victim. And they see that fetus is genetically half theirs and they don't see that fetus's future or identity is defined by their father, their biological father. And I ideologically agree more that we are not defined by the actions of our biological parents we are, have worth inherently as human beings um, and as unique human beings in and of ourselves. So, um, but that's again, my perspective. And I'm not saying all women should have my perspective, but if pregnancy would be traumatic for any reason, like tachophobia, for example, um, I mean, abortion isn't a mental health treatment. It's not something mental health professionals do. And people who do abortions aren't mental health professionals. 
So even if abortion happens, we're still going to have to treat trauma. So to me, it's not even a treatment for trauma. It doesn't address it at all. It, it, it ends a pregnancy, but that doesn't necessarily end the trauma. I guess I think about um, trauma, especially that type of trauma involving a loss of bodily autonomy, um, a violation of consent. And I, I hear what you're saying, that a woman could be raped and get pregnant and have a positive view of the pregnancy. Uh, you you make a valid point there, right? I'm certainly not going to speak for all women. Um, and I would say that that's, you know, if, if you are going to have the misfortune of the trauma of being raped and getting pregnant, that that sounds like an ideal outcome to, you know, be able to make sense of it in a way that you're like, no, I'm going to love this baby. This is mine to protect. And, you know, that sounds like a great outcome. Um, so yeah, I mean, who am I to say that any pregnancy that's a result of rape is, going to be an ongoing reminder of the trauma. But that's my initial instinct is to assume, and I don't think this is far-fetched, that the pregnancy and the child is an ongoing reminder of the trauma and that loss of bodily autonomy of like, not only was I violated this once, but now I am irrevocably, the whole trajectory of the right, the rest of my life is irrevocably changed by this. I mean, think about like, what makes trauma, what affects the magnitude of trauma and the complexity of trauma? Well, the permanence of its effects um, is definitely part of it, right? So as you know, I'm very concerned for detransitioners and victims of gender medicine. And part of what makes that trauma so complex and high risk is the permanent damage that detransitioners live with. They, they will you know, as long as they're living with those scars, um, that incontinence, the osteoporosis or, or whatever chronic pain they're dealing with, whatever disability they're dealing with, they, they will always have a physical reminder with them every single day in their very own bodies about that mistake they made when they were 20 years old and wrapped up in a cult and the medical profession had been captured. They will always live with that reminder. And I, you know, I hope very much for them to be able to go on to live meaningful lives and to not feel like they hate their bodies or that they're trapped in their bodies and to be able to make peace with their bodies as much as possible. I want that for them, but I'm not going to pretend it's easy. You know, I think that mm -hmm. um, if you, if you <laughs> were given the choice between having a traumatic event happen to you that does not permanently alter your physical reality versus one that does, obviously you'd want to choose the former, right? So when it comes to rape, you know, things that are going to magnify the intensity of that trauma and prolong it are going to be anything that feels permanent. If you got an STD, if you got a pregnancy, if you got injured in some way, those are physical permanents. Obviously there's psychological effects that are much harder to quantify and that's more the domain of psychotherapy, but you know, it's it's hard to imagine, like, especially a woman who had no plans to have children in the near future. You know, like, let's say she's like 20 years old and she's in college and planning to become a doctor. She has some vision for where her life is going or she's dating and she's looking for Mr. Right. And then this happens, right? Like, it, to suddenly wrap your mind around, I'm I'm pregnant and I 
didn't want this. I didn't ask for it. This was done to me. And now I have to live with this experience every single day, you know, physically, especially for the next nine months, but also for the rest of my life. Like, yes, in life, there are many things that happen to us that we don't have control over, or there are just situations beyond our control. And it, it's, you know, the best thing for our mental health is to control what we can and let go of what we can't. You know, there are many things that are just facts of life that you're better off trying not to hate them. You know, like it's a hundred degrees in Portland right now. And I could either waste energy being upset about that or not, you know, which is going to be better for my mental health. But uh, pregnancy and having a child and entering into parenthood, those are, those are so absolutely huge. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, I, obviously you must view it very differently. Yeah. So I don't view the pregnancy as a continuation of the trauma of rape. So rape is traumatic. I don't think many people would disagree with that as a statement. I don't think you need a pregnancy to have that reminder of that trauma. I certainly don't. I remember my two rapes very well and how traumatic they were very well. I didn't get pregnant from either one of those, but I don't need that as a reminder of what was done to me. So I, and pregnancy, taking it back to science, is my body reacting to stimuli in a healthy way. And I don't want it to become a narrative where pregnancy is inherently traumatic or wrong or bad or should be avoided or should be the reason you can't get your doctorate and become a doctor or can't find Mr. Right because your reproductive system works this way and you bear children. Like that to me takes it all back to what I think feminism is, which is the incorporation of our biology, not the destruction of it. And so I I think all of these narratives around the pregnancy is going to damage her forever. What, What are we saying a woman's body should be? Is she should never have any stretch marks, should never have saggy breasts, should never have a pouchy tummy. Um, should she never have incontinence? Should she never have, I have um, a rectocele. Should she never have, like, what are we saying the women's body should be when we're talking about all of that? And I'm not saying you're putting this on anyone. These are just larger concepts I consider when we talk about is pregnancy inherently good or bad? Um, And a lot of these are personal, right? Like my personal opinions of what a body should be and yours are different. Um, I just want to, as much as possible, incorporate the women's natural reproductive process into what is normal as possible. We are definitely coming from such different perspectives, but, you know, I'm trying to learn how you see it. And I am hearing this theme of empowerment. And it's hard to say that um, because I think the pro-choice perspective hears things very differently, hears them as disempowering, hears them as taking away a woman's right to choose. And, you know, I still, that's still how things land with my moral instincts. But I hear that for you, this is about empowerment in a different way. This is about embracing the power that we have as women um, to create life, to be mothers, and that the moment of conception, it's our process to 
engage with and embrace, even if that moment of conception wasn't something that you wanted. And and ultimately, I mean, what you describe is how I would hope for anyone to feel. I don't think I could tell anyone to feel that way. Um, and I certainly wouldn't sure. take away... I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to feel like a pregnancy was forced on her, but any, anyone who mm-hmm. wanted to make peace with a pregnancy, you know, I would, I would want to support her in that way. I think that's a good opening for maybe a cliffhanger for another episode because um, gestational slavery is definitely a thing. Gestational and slavery. I more than happy. Mm-hmm. So women caught in human trafficking that are raped until they're impregnated. That does happen in places around the world. And what's interesting is I often see um, anti-abortion laws cast in the light of the hands made tale. But if you actually read the book, the women in the book didn't want abortions. They wanted to keep their children. They didn't want people taking their children from them. So I find that interesting that that's the... the um, caricature of anti-abortion laws when that's not at all what gestational slavery actually looks like. Um, so I, I Wait, so anyway. these women who are caught in human trafficking, yeah, human trafficking victims, you're not saying that they're raped with the goal of impregnating them, just with the... Su- the some are in and some then parts what? of the country. I mean, and the then world. What? Um, they take the children either for forced sexual abuse or forced labor. Well, that's horrifying. What parts of the world is this going mm-hmm. on in? Happens in parts of the Middle East. It happens in trafficking that cross countries. I mean, there are, it happens when people take it from the U.S. Um, I'm sure it does happen in the U.S. I mean, if you look at forced marriage in the U.S., child brides in the U.S., it's the same thing to me. That's forced marriage and probably forced gestation as well. So I'm definitely not for forced or coerced anything. I think where you and I probably differ is to me, pregnancy in and of itself isn't, it's just a biological process. It's not a force in and of itself. Now somebody holding you captive and raping you, that is force, but your body isn't attacking you from my perspective when you're pregnant. That's just your body doing what it's designed to do. Um, that doesn't mean I'm trying to be flippant about this huge trauma that happens with that, or I'm unaware of that trauma at all. Well, um, this is really complicated, and I feel unresolved, but that seems appropriate. I feel like we've done justice to the complexity of the issue, and that there's no way we could have possibly covered all the ground or answered all the questions or even come to see eye to eye on very many things. Um, I'm aware we have to wrap up, but I'm I, I'm glad that we treated it with appropriate seriousness and complexity. Um, and I, I really hope that this conversation helps some people because uh, I think people on both sides of the issue are so stubborn <laughs> and emotional mm-hmm. about this issue. And yes, yes, mm-hmm. a pro-life and pro-choice 
person can like come and sit down and talk together. You know, I, I did a Twitter poll a couple months ago and granted a Twitter poll is by no means objective. It depends on who's following me and who feels like taking the poll. But I asked, have your views on abortion ever changed? And, you know, about 10% of people on said, yes, I've gone from pro-choice to pro-life. Another 10 said, yes, I've gone from pro-life to pro-choice. And the rest had never changed their views on it. So I don't think that trying to cram your views down someone's throat has ever worked. And I, I hope that, I don't hope to change anyone's views today, but I hope that maybe this conversation helps listeners feel maybe a bit better able to talk to that person in your life you become polarized with over this issue and understand that, um, as Lisa Swallow said in, in the podcast, uh, that'll be episode number 17, um, it's not about being immoral, it's about being differently moral. And there are moments today you and I were both able to say, yeah, if I saw it that way, then I would see it that way, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I would hope that what these conversations could breed is, um, pun intended, is for us all to work together on what we do have common ground. I do think both sides genuinely want less cohesion, abuse, and violence towards women. I do think both sides want children cared for. And so what are the ways we can come together? I have all kinds of ideas. It's not like I go to legislators and just anti-abortion. I'm talking to them about rape statutes and sentencing. And I'm talking to them about how do we get free childcare for college students without costing you a dime? So how do we offer more free counseling? How do we get tax write-offs for pro bono work so we can do more of it? So it's not that I'm just stop abortions. I'm like, no, how do we solve, like you said, how do we make them unnecessary? Mm. And I think that both sides can work together yeah. towards that. I would love to live in a world where abortion is unnecessary. I can agree with you on that. Okay. Well, that's beautiful. So Robin, thank you. Uh, tell listeners where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Truth Agape. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Robin Atkins. Um, Although I'm pretty locked down, I, at some point I'm probably just going to make it a public profile because now it's at the point where most people are following me because of this topic and not because they know me. Um, I just haven't got all my personal stuff out there yet, but people can try to reach me there. Um, otherwise, I'm on various podcasts around. They can find me at AppLog. Um, I'm the chair of the mental health subsection of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, so they can find me, Robin, at, at AppLog.org. They can email me there. Okay. Robin, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Some Therapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm Some Therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, 
Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.